We are here at part two of my interview with Paul James. Um, so we were just talking about, um, in part one, we were talking about your relationship with Bo Diddley. Um, you've, can you tell me, you know, you talked about the things that you learned watching him. But if I was to ask you right now, what, what's the greatest thing you learned from Bo Diddley? What would that be? Well, firstly, uh, you know, I became an entertainer and a songwriter and a singer and a guitar player and a band leader and um, and also to believe in myself and uh, not to be not to uh, you know just because people the door isn't open to you that doesn't mean that you you quit or anything not to you to take the bull by the horns you know i mean like when i one of the things that that uh i mean you know i i'm not going to be the greatest guitar player not going to be the greatest singer not going to be the greatest entertainer or whatever maybe the whole th package maybe makes sense but or or songwriter but but one thing that as a canadian musician because can't well now it's a lot now that we, have, we you know even now now it's even worse in a way i think but there was no much music when i started you know mm -hmm. i mean there was no connection for canadians from coast to coast right so there was um you um you could become popular in winnipeg and no one would ever know you in toronto or Right. Newfoundland or Vancouver, you could become popular in Vancouver, and no one would know you in Toronto or when you know, and just to to try and do that trip because we tried to do that with Lick and Stick, and I had Lick and Stick together for seven bands. years, right. uh, from '69 to '77 or eight years, and uh, you know. Um, my contribution was that, uh, in spite of the, uh, of being, you know, because I, like I, I, I had a deal with Columbia Records, in you know seventy four something like that, and uh, you know, I thought you know they they really liked me you know they came and they, they Columbia didn't have an office in Toronto or in Canada I don't think at that point so this was a start. And so they figured they had to get a few Canadian acts. I don't know if it was just, you know. Um, anyway, they they liked me, right. and they signed me, and then they wanted to meet, change me, like they like disco was just showing its head, and uh, and um, they wanted. They said, well, making music is like selling toothpaste. You have to, this is what's coming in. Right. You have to, you know, we want you to write some songs, some disco songs. But they didn't say disco because they didn't even have a word for it. But they said, like, hear what the Bee Gees are doing with Jive Talking, you know, like, and I was going, but, you know, and I was seeing George Surgood's career just starting, you know, and I was going, well, 
I'm playing with Bo Diddley. He's doing Who Do You Love? I mean, I, I it bothered me when I'd go and play. I mean, I, no offense against George or anything, but yeah, yeah. at the time, like, I'd go and play in a club and they'd say, play that George Surrogat song. You know, I go. That's not a George Sargent song. It's a Bo Diddley song. Right? And, and like, like it bothered me that I didn't get a chance. You know, like why couldn't they say, "You play this stuff really good. Let's get a producer and try and make you play it better." Right. You know, and record it. And and you know, because we were packing in club, we were doing well. I mean, we were playing six nights a week, playing all different clubs all over Ontario. And, uh, and, uh, you know, why can't we, you know, so why do we have to play this stuff? Like, you know, I'd be like, like I, I watched, it was, it was interesting. I was just re recently watching like David Ruffin and the temptations, like, and how, um, uh, like they had a guy replace him, right. uh, geez. And he just died. Oh, come on, I know his name. Oh, anyway, but I watched them, and they were doing, like, show tunes on Ed Sullivan's show, right. you know, like, uh, you know, something, I don't think it was Moon River, but that kind of thing. And it was just so not them. You know, like, you want to hear, you know, I wish you would ring, or my girl, or, you know, like, but they were sort of having to play these, you know, Old Man River, and it was just so... Not them, and and I liken that. You know, I was thinking about what you know, they were trying to make me be something I'm not. Right. You know, and and here this is my chance. You know, I don't want to. I want to. I want to play. You know, rock and blues. I mean, to to put a label on what I do, maybe it's you know like Chuck Berry was with Chess, and so was Bo Diddley, but they weren't as you know, the same as Muddy and Howlin' Wolf. I, I'm more like them, I think, with a little bit of Elmore James because I play a lot of slide and that. But So back then, while you're playing with Bo Diddley and, yes. and, and also while you have your band and you're playing all over the place and selling out all over Ontario, what was your dream? Like, were you thinking that you wanted to be the Rolling Stones? Were you thinking you wanted to be Bo Diddley? Were you thinking you wanted to be something else? I was having so much fun. I mean, I was young. The sexual revolution was happening, you know. I mean, you know, girls were like, we're not going to hockey games back then. <laughs> they are now, but they, they like, rock and roll was really So you were hip. thinking it was a good thing you gave up like, hockey for like, music. Like, so that, this was like my social life was like, wow. And I, I just, I w like, I was just learning so much, like, you know, like every time I'd find another artist, you know, I was still discovering people. And then, you know, playing with John Hammond, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and uh, I think the first time we played together, I'd seen him a few times before that and sort of met him, but we did a gig together and he liked my playing. And he played solo and I played with my band, so he sat in with us. And then we shared the dressing room and he had his acoustic guitar there and he said... Uh, try it out if you want. So, uh, you know, and it was in the tuning, so I started playing, you know, some slide and some Robert Johnson stuff. And he says, wow, you play that stuff pretty good. You should you should include it in your act. 
dumb. <laughs> you know, like John Hammond thinks I should do that. Then that I should do that, you know. So I started um, playing a s- solo acoustic stuff as well as early rock and roll and and blues and uh but that opened a whole you know it was sort of like a a whole discovery of um you know like it wasn't like who the rolling stones listened to rolling stones listened to muddy waters and howling wolf but who did muddy waters listen to and who did howling wolf listen to you know this is what getting into the acoustic music you know and then found robert johnson and this was like you know when i you know first was started playing robert johnson i bought the only record out of sam the record man and they didn't even have the second album out yet right and it was vinyl of course and so later on the second album came out and it was like whoa and uh it was like holy jeez he's playing the bass and and the lead and he's singing and he's written these songs wow and i just you know that he was the main guy but you know like blind william mctell you know blind lemon jefferson a lot of blind guys because i guess like i said the you know the handicap thing or something i mean maybe if they didn't get that blindness they wouldn't have been guitar players Hmm. because think how are you going to make a living and be blind you got to think it over so you can sit and practice a lot. You know, Blind Boy Fuller, whoa, incredible. Blind Lemon Jefferson, Blind Willie McTell, just Blind Blake. Oh, just how oh, yeah, ever, you know, and you find these guys and you go, oh boy, <laughs> I got work to do. You know, this is, this, but, but what a discovery, you know, and. Um, I think it takes uh, an educated ear to appreciate it. You know, I think like doing the discoveries and 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 I thought that also it was making me a more rounded. It made me a better musician, Chuck Berry right. player, to know Robert Johnson as a, you know just connecting all the roots and having the foundation of where it really came from and and you know filling in all these things and it was such fun it was like you were a prospector looking and you'd find one wow <laughs> you know and then John Hammond gave me um he had a a tape of the outtakes of Robert Johnson before the mm-hmm. the the thing and it, it, I, this <laughs> I, you it know, was I, like gold you know <laughs> I've had a conversation with John Hammond about Robert Johnson and I know uh-huh. how much Robert Johnson meant to him I can only imagine when you guys get together and talk about <laughs> Robert Johnson what that must be like oh uh, well we we we've been we've been friends for a long time. John is like, you know, John is so knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, um, you know, when he did his uh, f- uh, first uh, rockin' album, I mean, he was playing at a place called the Purple Onion in the village. And I used to go down there when I was young, you know, because he's eight years older than me. So that when, when I was 
12, he was 20. Right. You know, when I was 13, he was 21. And, you know, it was around that period I was, I would go down to the, that was the only place you could hear music. It was either in bars, you know, live music, or Yorkville, which was hippie town. Like, everything was, right. like, but they had all these coffee houses, and they weren't allowed to sell booze. So I could go in. <laughs> And, you know, and they... Without your sunglasses. Without my sunglasses. So I could go and watch a band actually perform. Like, I mean, this is, this is, you know, being able to see someone do it live in front of you is like, that's how it's done. Let's go. Now, now we can do that. You but is it as simple as just chords. watching him going, okay, I need to memorize that and going home and practicing it? Is it as simple as that? Well, well, the thing is, they were playing songs that we were trying to play. Like, you know, so I think we saw the private collection. You see Stitch in Time. We've seen um, uh, The Ugly Ducklings, um, uh, The Sparrow, who had become Steppenwolf, and uh, The Minor Birds. Mm-hmm who had become Buffalo Springfield and Rick James. And uh, what was other, the other thing was that we, uh, our, uh, our, my friend, uh, the goalkeeper and, uh, and drummer, his dad was the janitor sort of of, um, of the Devil's Den, which was below the Avenue Road ballroom, <laughs> which was where all these bands played. And we'd go in just to look at the equipment and in the day, we helped him clean up the place. Like, we cleaned the ashtrays and everything because that was his job the, the night after, the, you know. And we go and we look at the stage and, and, oh, this is the kind of amp they use. And, oh, they use a PA system. And, and you know, we were, look, don't touch anything, but we were, <laughs> we were on the stage with no one there the empty nightclub and looked at all the equipment and how it was set up. And then the owner comes in and he says, Hey, I understand you kids play. Why don't you come down tonight? And, and uh, uh, you know, we'll put you on a guest list. Come in and see the show. Uh, okay. You know, we go, we go down and then, Hey, why don't you do, do, do a couple songs with the band? And, Okay, <laughs> so I got Neil Young playing rhythm, playing guitar, Bruce Palmer on bass, who both going to be in Buffalo Springfield, mm-hmm. and uh, Rick James didn't sing because I was singing. I do a round and round by Chuck Berry and Down Home Girl, <laughs> you know, and I knew they knew it because I I seen them once before and watched her show and uh so here we are about 13 or 14 playing with these old guys you know 23 or something (laughs) and uh and the crowd goes yay first time really playing in front of people it was like like you know like the biggest thrill I mean you know like they we were like we were like a novelty act because yeah, we were yeah. so young you know young kids and you know and so it went on, and so the guy said come back next week you can sit in with the sparrow 
these guys are going to be Steppenwolf, you know? Yeah. And we did. And, and, and that was, you know, that really, wow, we, maybe we can do this. You know, and so we, and so learning. But anyway, back to the John Hammond was playing at, at the, um, the Purple Onion, and uh, he told me that while he was there, he went to the Concord Tavern, which was located where Long and McQuaid's in Toronto is now. Mm-hmm. That was the Con- and the, and Levon and the Hawks were playing there, and he went over and heard them, and he said. I'd like you guys to play on my album. I'm going to make a blues album. I'm on Vanguard Records. And he got them to uh, to come to New York and play on his album, So Many Roads. And uh, Garth, Henry Hudson, and Robbie Robertson, I think... Uh, Mike Bloomfield played guitar on that as well. Oh no, he played piano on it or hmm. something. Uh, and uh, Charlie Musselwhite on. Anyway, he they did that album, and John took it to England, where he met Brian Jones, and the Stones hadn't recorded yet. And here was a. I mean, now everyone is not a, not a big deal, but like, here was a white guy, playing black blues. Playing a song by Muddy Waters, one by Howlin' Wolf, one by Bo Diddley, one, and Brian Jones, who at that time is the leader of the Rolling Stones, and he says, "Here's my album." Whoa! (laughs) And then you know the 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 Stones did the same thing. Well, what's amazing to me, I recently heard an amazing interview with John Hammond. You know John personally. Yeah. His history and his contribution to the music history is unbelievable. <laughs> and all the things, like little things like that, where he introduced so-and-so to so-and-so and all these things that I didn't even know about, but he's an amazing person. Tell me what you learned from John Hammond. Well, I mean, you know, I, I like I said, he got me to play acoustic blues. I mean, you know, just the fact that he said, you know, the fact I was so, the fact that he thought I did it good so, as you know, being a musician, a working musician, I never thought, you know, like, like I think, you know, becoming Rolling Stones or Bob Dylan or Beatles, or that's like winning the lottery. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in Canada, we had Gordon Lightfoot and maybe the Guess Who, um, you know, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young. But, like, if you think about it, you can... You know, once you get to about 20 names, you're going to run out. You right. know, like, I mean, the guys who really made it. Uh, I mean, more so now, maybe. But back then, it was like, and someone won, won the lottery every week. Right. Right? So chances of getting, hitting that was like winning the lottery. I mean, did you see it that way? I I I I think that you had to be in the right place at the right time. I think you had to have an American deal. Right. So when you had the deal with Columbia Records and they're now telling you to do disco or whatever and you're saying this is not me. Did that change your opinion of the music industry or where you wanted to be? Well, I learned, you know, what was going on. Uh, like my reply was, you know, I was trying to, I didn't know what disco was 
and I was just trying to figure out what they what they wanted. And I, so I actually I'd gone to Jamaica and I came back and I you know I heard a whole bunch of John, Bob Marley stuff and I'd I'd written a song called Marianne that that had these Spanish chords, and I, I decided to put and and do it in a reggae and I thought maybe they'll like this as you know sort of uh, and uh, they actually recorded it it got released Dick Clark picked hit it but it never got released in the states and it never got it never really got a push or anything and they were still wanting disco right. and and I said well and and you know I told them about Bob Marley and they said It'll never happen, you know. Reggae, it never happened, you know. I say it's like a black Elvis, I think, you know. Like, never happened, and uh, you know, sort of weird that you know, in seventy, you know, eight or nine, the police come out with you know mm -hmm. reggae de blanc and all, and then there was and there was all all this whole thing happening. But you know, it was we did that a few years before that, you know. But anyway, but you've always done music. Did you ever stop music? No, I never quit. I never stopped. I always thought, you know, I don't know. I, I was making a living, you know. And then, you know, I had kids, and so like, I had to, you know, raise them. And then, you know, one of the casualties of of this life, you know, was I broke up with my my partner who I still get along with and you know but I always had the responsibility of taking care of the kids and mm -hmm. her I guess mm -hmm. uh right up until they had reached you know their 20s and uh and I did and uh so I could never stop but I was you know I uh you know being on the road for th 3 months at a time and stuff but one of my get back to one of my contributions was I think I was one of the first guys to you know after the Columbia deal you know and uh what happened we had a two-month tour planned for to go out west and I was so looking forward to it and uh when the deal fell apart so did the tour and I had actually uh you know rent was was expensive so I actually moved out of my place into my mom's because I was going to save two months' rent, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. And uh, so the two are falling apart, and then, like all the guys who were all older than I was, I was the youngest guy in the band. I had two managers at that time as well, uh, a guy who did a write-up of me and, and and liked me and said he wanted to manage me. I said okay. Unfortunately, that that was it was good and it was bad because. Uh, as we were hot and no one else would touch us because we had uh we had a manager already right. and uh unfortunately he didn't have any do re mi or anything to put behind the band and uh um but he did get us that record deal with Columbia but the and but like I said it was unfortunate that it would be like you know Assigning George Surrogood and you know getting him to do uh, I don't know show tunes right. or something you know I don't know it was just like weird I mean Columbia signed I mean one of the things that I, I noticed like you know in retrospect and I knew John Hammond I knew his dad 
had discovered so many people. One of the people he discovered was Aretha Franklin, mm -hmm. but he was getting her to do show tunes and stuff, right. and it just didn't work. So when she went to Atlantic, you know, just by putting the right producer yeah, yeah. and the right, you know, but you win some, you lose some, I guess, and it can happen to anybody. But it was just unfortunate for me when I got out of the deal um, and my band collapsed, um, I just, you know, I could have kept going with Lick and Stick because I was the leader of the band and the singer and the, the main force. But, you know, the, the wives of the other guys, they all wanted them to quit and right. become grown-ups and get real jobs. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know how to do anything else. And so I said, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be Paul James, Paul James band. And again, Bo Diddley helped me again because he said, you know, yeah, you know, I'm Bo Diddley, Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry. If the band changes, doesn't matter. You're still out there. So no more look and stick, no more band name. And I became Paul James and, uh, you know, I was going to make my own records. And I got impressed by Columbia, nice. by its special products, <laughs> oddly enough. And uh, and the people, it was funny because the people there liked me. And, you know, and there was not anybody really do it. Now everybody's an indie. You have to mm -hmm. be. Yeah. Because the rec all the record industry has sort of collapsed and stuff since all the... Uh, but, so I was ahead of my time in that, First of all, you know, just breaking away and being Paul James right. band. Um, you know, I mean, Morgan Davis was the catfish. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Jack DeKaiser was the bobcats and and uh, Michael Pickett was wooden teeth. And, you know, like, but like, uh, no, okay, I'm going I'm, I'm to do this now. So changing is not, no more band name, I'm going... And then, oddly enough, you know, after doing that, I had the same guys in my band for 25 years. No changes, <laughs> right? But anyway, but, but I, the other, my, being an independent artist, like at that point, like when I became Paul James, like I lost my man, I had managers that took care of all the business. I didn't know what was going on business-wise. Right. I knew that when I started the Paul James band, when I started, I, all of a sudden, my biggest expense was was uh, renting a van, and uh, and I started the guys off in my band who are all now younger than me, um, making more than I ever made with Lick and Stick, right. you know. So and then and I was making three times what I was making with Lick and Stick. So, you know, by managing myself and taking care of business, I could do better. And I, we went into a place called the Red Lion on Jarvis Street. And I walked in there, and uh, on a Friday night, there was like, you know, five people in the place. And it's a small club. And I talked to Donnie Caruso, who was at the bar. And he said, well, what do you think? You think you can get some people in here? And I said, well, I know I can do better than this. You know, <laughs> like, like, he said, well, let's try it for a week. And see what happens. Now, I was used to doing the, the, you know, I'd been playing so many clubs that, and uh, and I'd done the house gig thing before. So we played for one week, and we stayed for a year. And, uh, and then the Hotel California, which was down the street on Jarvis, 
came to me and propositioned me. I said, well, how much you get in there? We'll give you more. So I went to Donnie. I said, look, Donnie, if you can match what these guys want to pay me, you know, we'll stay here. Uh, but, you know, they're offering a little bit more. And he said, Paul, you know what? Since you've been here, you put me in the black. It's the first time I've ever been in the black of my life. And now I've got guys from, I get 10 guys from different bands every night coming in here asking us to play here. He said, if you can do better over there, like you have my blessings and, and thank you so much. And we shook hands. I went to Hotel California. So I played there for six months. And then the Lips, Upper Lip, which was on Young Street, a kitty corner to Gasworks, came and, would you play over here for more money? So the same thing. So I ended up over there. And then I was playing there, and uh, um, I, uh, while we were there, I, um, I heard, like, Mink DeVille was a band that I really liked. And like I, like I said, the disco era had happened. Right. And uh, and then they came out around, you know, I, well, I came out as Paul James Band. And, uh, and I really, punk rock also came out just after disco. But like punk rock was like, uh, lots of attitude, but not a lot of musicianship, right. you know, like... But, like, they were all stars and, you know, like, uh, you know, lots of attitude. But uh, of all the bands that came out of CBGBs and that, Mink DeVille, I thought, wow, these guys aren't punk rock, but these guys are really, this is a good band. These guys are good. And Wooly can sing. Right. Jeez. And I, I started doing Cadillac Walk, and I started doing She's So Tough, I think in 79 or something. And, uh, you know, later on, and, and, and about 1982, he heard about me or something because he called me and said, uh, why don't you come down on my show at the Elmo tonight? And I said, uh, I'm playing. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, what are you doing after your show? I said, nothing. He said, well, come on over to the, I don't know, I think it was the Westbury Hotel or something. And he said, bring a guitar. I said, okay. And so I went, and I, and uh, we sat, and I bought a slide, and I think I had a rack harmonica, and I was playing some Robert Johnson stuff and whatever, and slide and and stuff, and and he was into all that stuff, and we'd pass the guitar back and forth, and and he said, my guitar player, please, I'm going to call you, and I said, oh, okay, you know, wow, I thought they were great, you know, I'm from New York, right. big, you know, this is big. Three months later, I got a call. Come on down to New York. Uh, I'm going in the studio, the power station. We're going to record Stand By Me. And then I want you to, you know, rehearse with the band a couple times. And we're going to go on a 12-country tour of Europe. Ah! You know, so I said, okay. I go to the guys at the Upper Lip. And they're young Lebanese guys who are into... They like Mink DeVille and all, like, you know, they, right. they like all the stuff that I like. And, and uh, they said, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I said, the only thing, I said, look, 
if you keep my band here, I don't care if you get another front man or whatever, but just keep this so that I have a band intact. Because if I go away for three months and come back, you know, they're going to have to make a living and, you know, who knows what will happen to them. Uh, And uh, and I'll come back and I'll play, do a house gig here and we'll probably get promotion, you know, from because of the tour and all that. And they said, yeah, okay, we'll do it. So they kept my band. I went to New York. Got to New York, you know, and uh, little did I know, you know, that, uh, um, you know, all the guys in the band weren't going to take me with open arms. One of their guys was being fired (laughs) that they played with for three years. And here I'm going to take his place and they're not into it, you know. So um, a couple of the guys are okay with it, but, you know. So I, I thought, you know, they're going to help me. But no, I had to work. So here I am sleeping on Willie's couch. And I don't know if you know anything about Willie and his wife, Toots. Willie and Toots. You don't know no. Willie and Toots DeVille? Okay. Well, you know, there's guys who are really talented. But they have problems. Mm. You know, like Charlie Parker or Mate, Billy Holiday. Mate. You know, Chet Baker. Uh, and he was one of them. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so it wasn't what you thought you were signing up for. You know, I loved the music and I, I went for it and, uh, you know, I went over the guys in the band and, uh, and we played and it was incredible. And, you know, uh, I got DeVilled, you know, I mean, um, Mink DeVille, they were like, uh, the image, you know, like I, you know, I really got it, you know, like, you know, when you're seeing the Beatles, you got it, right? you know, and the Stones even, you know, or Dylan, even though it was an anti-image, it was an image, a thing, I mean, what we were, where we were like, um, you see West Side Story? Mm-hmm. You know the Puerto Rican gang? Yeah, yeah. We were the Puerto Rican gang on dance night. We were like purple shirts, pink shirts, ruffled shirts, skinny black ties, bolo ties, cummerbunds, thin black pants, Cuban heels, and very slick R&B. That was what we were. And... Um, and the music was had a Spanish tinge to it of uh, R&B. And it was a f- fantastic band. It was great. Uh, we And here they were cult following. There, I mean, you know, it was incredible. Uh, we played, you know... 40,000 people, 20,000. We played the opera house in where Edith Piaf played in Paris. Hmm. Three nights, sold out. No opening act, like uh, the Olympia. And while we played the first night, it was being broadcast on the Chum radio as a simulcast, so everyone could listen to it on their radio. And then the next night, People were selling bootlegs of the of cassettes, you know, 
on on the street in front of the show. I mean, it was we we played Berlin when the wall was still up. We played uh, uh, we played two festivals in in Brussels. U two opened. Signed autographs to all the guys in the band. They had trailers in the back. They were running. It was their first tour of Europe, 1982. Steve Miller opened for us. Tell me, you know, you've worked with Dylan. You've worked with John Hammond and Bo Diddley. And you've worked with a lot of the greats and obviously worked with them more than once. You have a relationship with a lot of them. What is it about what you do? Like, what do you think it is that what you do that that you have make these connections with some of the greats in the industry? I don't know if that's a fair question to ask you, but... Um, with Bo Diddley, I think he saw something in me. I think that was him. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a kid struggling, trying to make it in the music business, and loved what he was doing and I think you know he appreciated that I was not trying to grandstand or anything I was trying to make him look good and do as good a job as I could and learn something you know and appreciate it you know because I did and you know it was a real heartfelt feeling I think with John it was the same thing you know I think I I really admired his work and um you know just I think he saw something in me too you know like uh and Willie you know like John was like like Bo was like a a father in a kind of way black father but anyway but he really cared about me like I really felt that and he really like you know he he knew the business was a real you know you're gonna get eaten up by this if you you know you like you know I'd already been through a bit of the mill and he's seen me go through it and he said okay well don't worry about Columbia just make your own record you can do it you know you save your money you know and you know do do it you know and and uh uh, and you know that's part of my contribution because I think like a lot of guys saw me doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, it was like me going to Yorkville and you know like seeing God, how they figured it out. Okay, he's playing that. You know, like I mean, I could hear it on the record, but watching someone do it in front of you, you know, it's like oh. And uh, I think like I was independent and did that, and then. When I, you know, after I put out my album, which I wrote a lot of the songs while I was on on tour with Mink DeVille because, you know, I was sitting on a bus all the time waiting for Willie, you know, and, and uh, you know, and I was, you know, I, I wasn't, I was not the leader. I, I'm so used to being, I'm a leader. Everybody in the band, you know, like was, they were expert backup guys, you right. know. I mean, Tommy Price, the drummer, he played with Billy Idol and, and, you know, Joan Jett and whatever, and Lewis was, you know, like the sax player. I mean, it was, these guys were, you know, accomplished sidemen, but no one was a leader. I was a band leader. So I was like, more like Willie. And I think, um, 
Um, so he was like a bad brother. <laughs> and uh, John was like a good brother. But you got something from both of them. You know, I mean, John was like, you know, I've seen guys go from nobody to somebody to dead all in, you know, yeah. four or five years. And uh, uh, it's, a, it's a tough business, you know. And, um, but you never but wanted to give it up. Never. I, I've always loved it. I still love it. And, you know, like I said, the first time, like just getting up at, at the devil's den and playing and people going, yeah, like, liking it. It was like, oh, I've been bitten. You know, I, I'm never going to, you know, this is, this is, you're getting appreciated for, so you want to do the best you can. You want to, you know, you, you, you just want to do that. And if you can make a living doing something you like, I figure that's, you know, that, that's, that's what it's all about. I've seen that awards and all that. I mean, you, it's a lot of playing a game. You know, you got to go and schmooze all the time and knowing the right people and talking to the da 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 and all. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to play, you know, and uh, meeting Dylan, you know, that was, uh, you know, here was a guy that I admired so much. I mean, in my... I think a high school yearbook, you know, it was sort of like there was a picture of me and they'd written Mr. Tambourine Man. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and, and, and so, you know, uh, and then with Lick and Stick, a lot of times I get described as, um, it sort of looks like Bob Dylan a bit, you know, and, <laughs> and, and sounds like him too. And, uh, you know, John Hammond said, well, you do Dylan better than Dylan, you know. And, I, and then I, I, you know, I, I, I met Jack Elliott, you know, who was another, like at the Colonial, we, we ended up doing, splitting a gig with him. And, and, uh, and so that was sort of another connection, sort of the Dylan thing. And, and he got us to back him up for a couple of songs. And, uh, but then Dylan coming to my gig you know, and I, I like my show is such that in about mm, 1982, I started playing with a wireless guitar. It doesn't change the sound of the guitar or anything, but like, like I said, from learning from Bo Diddley, I wanted to be an entertainer. And so I had to develop my own thing, you know, other than just, I didn't want to copy what everyone else, I wanted to have something that was mine. Mm -hmm. Now, Charlie Patton played with a guitar behind his head, apparently. There's no pictures, but they said he did all kinds. I threw it in the air, and, and you know, T-Bone Walker played it with behind his head, and Jimi Hendrix did, and, but no, no one spun around <laughs> across the stage and did it. And so uh, I added, like, and, and with a wireless guitar... I could, uh, I used a long cord for a while and go out in the audience and stuff, but I started using, with a wireless, I could, you know, but people step on the cord and stuff, and, you know, you'd be, but with a wireless, I, I, I could spin around and not have a whole bunch of cord wrapped <laughs> around my feet. And, you know, I learned to do that, you know, and not get dizzy and not hit anybody. And, <laughs> Which is uh, important. And, uh, you know, and I, I would wander over to the bar you know, it's sort of all entertainment. And, 
you know, and I leave it every everything that I, I would try different things, um, you know, on off nights from all these uh, gigs that I play, like six nights a week type stuff, and you know. Uh, you know the Beatles got to a Mac show, Mac show. You know, like so you so you try and get them. You know, if they were sitting there, you know, on a Tuesday night, and then you have to do something to get them, wake them up. So throw the guitar behind your head, spin around, go to the bar, order a drink, start playing with one hand and drinking the drink, then playing with a beer bottle, play slide guitar, and I started doing that at the Nags Head North, and this guy steps up to me. He's about a foot away from me. And I look up, and it's Bob Dylan. And I'm, I said, I, I won't tell anybody you're here. <laughs> I, I don't know why I said that, but he laughed and said, I won't if you don't. And I said, and I'm still doing my solo. The band's on the stage, backing, and people are watching me talk to some guy here over by the bar while I'm having a drink and playing slide guitar. And and I said, I, you know. I'd really like to talk to you, me. He says, well, meet me at, at, at the bar after your set. I said, okay. And uh, I threw the guitar over my head and spun across the dance floor and got back on stage and realized I still had half an hour in my set to go. <laughs> and I'm thinking the whole time I'm up there, he's going to get recognized and split. You know, it's going to be like, so uh, go after the set, I go over to the bar. He's there. We go back to the dressing room, and no one's recognized him. I'm, you know, just like you know, who's gonna expect? I don't know. He had, you know, he had a, this hat on and a poncho or something. You know, like he's a master of disguises and stuff. Anyway, but so we're sitting in the dressing room, and I got my acoustic guitar, and so I was doodling and start playing some Robert Johnson stuff, and he said, "Play that again." Okay, <laughs> you know, and, and wow, you know any more of his stuff? And I play some slide, terraplane blues or some crazy thing. He said, "Wow, that's good. How'd you do that?" And I'm going, Bob Dylan, <laughs> you know, like oh my god. So then he says, uh, uh, "I'd like to sit in with your band." I said, "We know lots of your songs. I'm." A, been an admirer forever. He says, nah, I don't want to do any of my songs. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. Well, uh, he says, uh, uh, I'll just play backup guitar for you. I said, okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, I said, do you want to come? We're, you know, when we go up, do you want to come up with us? Or So well, why don't you do one or two and then just introduce me as a hitchhiker from Vancouver. <laughs> So I did. We go up and we're playing like, you know, Elmore James, Howlin' Wolf, did the audience Muddy know? Waters. And the audience says, I don't know. You know, like they're, they're sort of going, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, we I didn't announce Bob yeah, Dylan's yeah. up there. And it's sort of like he's in the background playing backup guitar. And we're doing Chuck Berry. We're doing some of my songs. And uh, anyway... We end up, I'm so, I'm the leader, and I'm normally a good time person. Clubs were only open till one o'clock at that time. We played till two o'clock, and no one said anything. I forgot, I, did, I, I was so in the moment. Yeah. We did a two hour set. So then we stop, 
<laughs> and uh, so I, I said, you want to come back to my place? He said, yeah. So we all pile into my van, my whole band and everything. We're all in my van. And we're going back to my place and uh, listen to cassettes on the, and, uh, you know, oh, yeah, that's a good one. I like the, yeah. And, and then he pulls out a, a t- he says, hey, try this one. And it's Charlie Feathers, you know, a rockabilly guy. And hmm. oh, yeah, this is good. And uh, we're just laughing and having a good time. We get back to my place. We sit on the floor and we have a couple guitars. We're just playing acoustic guitars. And uh, we're laughing and smoking and drinking and and uh, talking. He says, uh, you, should, you should go to L.A. You should go to, you know, and... Just do what you're doing here. You get snapped up in no time. And I said, well, you know, I got kids, and it's hard to just take up and go now. But uh, anyway, we, he said, well, where else are you playing? Just write it all down, write it down and, uh, uh, you know, put me on the guest list for all of them. And maybe I might show up or whatever, see what happens. And uh, so... Uh, we sat there until 10 in the morning anyway, playing. And and, and then he came to, uh, well, I was playing the diamond. And at that point, it had hit the paper the next day that, you know, he showed up to my show. And so all these people showed up to the diamond hoping to see Bob Dylan, I think, too. Mm-hmm. And we packed the joint overly. And, uh, and he didn't come. <laughs> and uh, it was a good night. And then I played the Alma Combo, and he showed up for that and came. And uh, I was supposed to go and pick him up, and I got lost. And he found his way over there with his, his daughter. He brought Anna. And, uh, and, we, and we sat and talked, and he talked. And he, says, and he liked a couple of some of my songs. I, and... Uh, he had my first album at that time, Almost Crazy, which was mostly original stuff. And, uh, and we talked, and he says, so, so uh, talking about songwriting, and, and, and I said, well, he asked me about so, my songwriting. I said, well, I said, I got to write, I don't know, you know, I got to write 20 songs to get one that's a keeper. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, that's what I find. But I never know which one's going to be whether it's a keeper or not, I, until I go through the whole process of doing it, you know, like, cause I, I'm, and then, uh, you know, then one seems to stand out. I don't know until after the fact. I said a lot of the songs, some of the, some of the best ones come like almost, you know, all at once. Right. And uh, so, he says, so uh, one out of 20 he says, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> and I said, oh, right. He's got like thousands, so can you imagine how much stuff he's written, you know? So then, uh, so then I'm playing with Bo Diddley, and uh, I'm playing at, uh, I'm backing him up and opening the show, and uh, Ronnie Hawkins' manager got me the job. We're, it's a closed party for the OPP. <laughs> they have their own, Ontario Principal Police, they have their own club, I guess, you know, because uh, for... You know, sort of like um, I don't know. It's just a club, you know, where they or where they go. Right. So 
we're playing there with Bo Diddley, and uh, Bob shows up. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I, I, told, I told Bob, I told Bo, I said, uh, and at that night, Bo wrote the liner notes for my second album. I mean, you know, he's such a, Bo was so supportive of me. It was, I just, boy, he was great. I just, but anyway, so I said, do you want to meet Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan's here. He said, no. <laughs> I said, oh. And uh, he, he said, watch out, he's going to steal your material. <laughs> I said, <laughs> so Bo, on my first album, like like I was saying when I played with Bo Diddley, uh, we play night after night, right. uh, and he'd be changing words to songs, and some of them would be new songs I never heard before and stuff. He wrote one about a shotgun wedding called The Ugliest Girl in Town, and uh, it's a funny song. I figured, well, maybe I should, I'll do The Ugliest Girl in Town. I think I can remember the words, you know, but they were all different all the time, and he never recorded it. And so I was trying to remember it, and uh, and I did the best I could. So he came, Bo came into town. I said, I, I recorded uh, The Ugliest Girl in Town. He said, oh, wow, great. And let me come in. I'm going to put my two cents in on it. So he added percussion on it, and then he also, like, pretended he was the, the, the father and said, oh, <laughs> there he is. That's the sucker, you know. Get out the ring, boy. And like, uh, anyway, at, at the end, he says, listen, you changed a lot of the words. And, uh, you know, and I'm playing, I play all the Bo Diddley stuff with a slide guitar. It's just my addition to it, but, you know. Anyway, he says, uh, I'm going to have to give you a writing credit on it because uh, it's, you know, you've changed it so much. I said, oh, okay, so I co-wrote a song with Bo Diddley. And then so, that being said, going back to the Dylan thing and, and what Bo Diddley said, you know, watch always got his Dylan material. So Dylan's next album, he's got a song called The Ugliest Girl in the World. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. and uh, it's funny, like there's a lot of, there's a few things I notice uh, uh, on different, um, but, but for me, I, I like, you know, it, it could be all coincidence totally, you know. But for me, if I thought that Bob got something from me, I would be so pleased. Uh, and I, Because I've stolen so much stuff <laughs> from him. It's unbelievable. I mean, you know, I learned so much stuff mm -hmm. from Bob. It's, if, if, if he got anything from me, I'd be just delighted, you know. Uh, but he doesn't say anything about his influences at all, you know. So, but he's he's very funny about how he gets stuff. I, I having studied him, you know, like and there was a point when he wanted me to be in his band, and you know, uh, I uh, you know it, I think it's almost the job that you hope and fear to get. Yeah. You know, I mean, the other thing is be like, I mean. Wow, you'd never be at home, you know. But I, I mean, never. But you learn so much, you know. And he's one of the guys I just love. But it it didn't it didn't happen. 
Paul, this has been an amazing couple of hours. Thank you so much for sharing your life. You know, it's been an amazing life, and I hope you, you look back on it with, uh, obviously, with lots of great memories. And thanks for sharing that I, with me. I, I, I'm so grateful to have made a living playing music in Canada and around the world a bit, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm just so grateful and to play with some of the people who really originated so much of it and to touch them, you know, like, and, uh, and have them touch me, uh, you know, I'm still here. And now that I got my hearing back, I I feel like, uh, like I can, there's so much more I can do now. I feel like I'm like, I've been, I had just like for seven weeks, I had, I've been chained in in solitary confinement and not allowed to do anything and all of a sudden I'm free again and I mean it was the most strangest thing losing my hearing I mean unbelievable now I'm almost want to try something again you know it's (laughs) Well, thanks you know, for sharing I'm old, I'm, but I'm not done yet. I mean, God doesn't want me to stop yet, or he would have. Right. You know, I'd be over. And so I'm still here, so I, I'm going to keep on trying. And uh, and I hope I inspire other people. And uh, I think, like I said, that, I think that may be my contribution, because a lot of guys probably look at me and say, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm doing it, you know, and, and to do it independently. And then like when I, when I, like after Lickin' Stick and not being able to tour across Canada, I was out there with a machete, you know, I made a road, right. you know. I mean, Jack DeKaiser followed me into the, the Isabella and then became the Jack DeKaiser band mm-hmm. from the Bobcats. But there's a lot of guys. No one was traveling, playing all 10 provinces. And, you know, all the clubs that I played, you know, that that became like a... a the circuit. A circuit, you know, but no one had opened it up, you know. No one had made, and it was a driving circuit. I'm, like, this was not a flying tour. Right. This was driving, living your van all the way, east coast, west coast, all ten provinces. So that was that, and the being not getting on your knees to a record company, or thinking that okay, if I can't get a deal, I can't do it. Being independent and taking the bull by the horns and saying I'm going to do it anyway. That was my contribution, I think, so that you can do it too. Right. Just work hard and sacrifice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for this. Thank you so much.